It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, and the captivating memoir, Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. You know, trauma has a way of showing up when we least expect it, and society sends many signals telling us that it's admirable to put on a brave face and soldier on. But our grief is normal, even healthy, says today's special guest, world-renowned expert on disasters and trauma, Dr. Randall Bell. Dr. Bell says the hallmark error is to continually dodge the pain. There is a time and place for avoidance. However, to heal and grow, we cannot dodge the pain forever. He writes this in his new book, Post-Traumatic Thriving, The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience. When trauma hits, your most significant decision will be to dive, survive, or thrive. If you choose to thrive, this book is for you. Dr. Bell undertook unprecedented research and juxtaposes outcomes of scientific studies with stories of real people, many of them familiar, who have used their trauma as their fuel to thrive, to reveal common denominators. He divides his remarkable insights into these uh, sections, the dive stage, the survive stage, and the thrive stage, and outlines a step-by-step process toward authentic healing. As an economist, Dr. Randall Bell has consulted on more disasters on earth than anyone in history and is widely considered the world's top authority in the field of post-traumatic thriving. His clients include the federal government, state governments, international tribunals, major corporations, and homeowners. Dr. Bell believes that The problem is not the problem. The problem is how we react to the problem. Often called the master of disaster, Dr. Bell's research has been profiled on major television shows and featured in numerous magazines and the international media. We are so, so fortunate to have him with us today, and I know you're all excited to hear what he has to say. Good morning, Dr. Bell. Welcome to A Fine Time for Healing. Good morning, Randy. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, thank you. It is a pleasure to have you. So you say in the beginning of your book, there seems to be an assumption that everyone has escaped their trauma and are dealing with things squarely in the past, but many people are presently being traumatized and need tools or the suggestion to make getting to a safe place a top priority. Abuse and I like, this, I, like, I like this sentence. Abuse and trauma can start to feel normal after a while, so we need a reality check. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I start the book off with the, we, we, we don't want to assume that the trauma is over. We may be enduring it. And the book is titled Post-Traumatic Thriving. It's dealing with the aftermath. So if, if I would caution anyone, um, to, you know, make an honest assessment and make sure that they're in a safe place, you know, frankly, before reading the book, because um, uh, that's essential. We're talking about healing, and you can't heal when you're in the middle of the trauma. you got to deal with the, the reality, getting away from the abuse, uh, getting away from, from any situation that's unhealthy, and then we can start to heal. I agree with you 100%. So what, how do you define trauma? Well, trauma is pretty broad. It's any event that comes along and hits us and that we have difficulty kind of, um, you know, getting back on our feet. And and so something that might not traumatize you might, you know, really traumatize me. It's a, a, a you know, a person-by-person assessment. But if after three or four months we're not, we don't feel uh, healthy, uh, we don't feel, uh, you know, optimism in our lives, then we might be, harboring that trauma internally, and it's time to get some help. Okay. 
So you divide your insight into three sections, the dive stage, the survive stage, and the, th- the thrive stage. So, and then you talk about an, a step-by-step process towards healing. So what is the dive stage? Well, the dive stage typically starts off with shock. You know, the shock that I can't believe that, you know, she left me or he left me or the shock that uh, we discover some hidden secret in our partner or the shock that we're uh, served divorce papers, the shock that the doctor tells us that we have some some serious health issue. Uh, it, it starts off with shock, and it's essential to go through the the uh, not just the sociology and the psychology of it, but also the physiology of it. In other words, to understand how the brain works and to understand that the rush of emotions that we feel um, pumping through our veins is is nature's normal reaction to to a trauma. And believe it or not, as we understand how the brain works, uh, that helps us in our healing because we, it, come, it brings us down to a realization that what we're going through is actually normal and actually healthy. You know, it's, it's healthy to be angry as long as we don't hurt anybody. It's healthy to even go into depression for a while. Um, it's, and, and, or I should say it's normal, um, you know, and denial. All those stages in the, in the dive stage are explained um, you know, in terms of both the emotional side and the physical side. And when we have a complete picture, it kind of helps us process the whole ordeal uh, more effectively. Why do so many of us have unresolved trauma? Yeah, that's a terrific question because by college age, Randy, uh, 66 to 85% of uh, college students have, have been through a, a trauma. So it's, it's very common. And, uh, and we, the, the problem is, and you mentioned it in, in your show's introduction, is that the classic mistake is made where we, where we don't talk about it. We don't express it. Uh, we bury it inside. And when we do that, we start an internal war. And I'll use myself as a bad example of that because <laughs> I, was born, I was born with a congenital heart defect. And I had open heart surgery when I was 11, uh, an 11-year-old boy. And it was traumatic. And I never healed from it. I, I stuffed my feelings down. My parents didn't really facilitate, you know, an open conversation about it. Uh, and I love my parents. That, that was just kind of the thinking of the time. And, and, again, that's the classic mistake. What you want to do is tell your story. That's, that's number one in the whole recovery process is to begin telling your story, maybe not publicly, but to a therapist or a tr- very trusted friend or at least by journaling. Uh, that, starts the, that starts the healing process. Thank you for sharing your situation. I can imagine how traumatic that would be for an 11-year-old boy. I wouldn't even let the doctor give me a shot at that age. So <laughs> I would hide under yeah. the table. So that must have been very terrifying. Uh, you, you talk about secondary reactions. What are some of the secondary reactions we might have to trauma? Oh, boy, there's a whole bunch. And you kind of got to divide the list into self-medication versus self-care. Self-medication... Um, you know, may or may not be healthy as a temporary kind of Band-Aid. But those are things, the classics, of course, are drinking too much alcohol, um, you know, abusing drugs. But you also get into the areas of high-demand politics, high-demand religions, um, anger addiction, uh, anything that becomes unhealthy and obsessive. Um, You can even take, you know, physical exercise too far. Uh, These are all ways of kind of masking the pain and putting a Band-Aid on the situation uh, rather than really kind of dealing with what's what's going on inside. Right. Addictions, drugs, alcohol. Yeah, a lot of people do go to those things to, to numb the pain because it is too, yeah. it's very difficult to feel it. Uh, yeah, and, are- and my personal addiction, I'll, I'll be open and honest, my personal addiction was uh, workaholism. I was working, you know, uh, insane hours going all over the world, and I loved it. I was a, it was a thrilling experience, but it was too much. Um, and, and so there's lots of ways for this trauma to kind of manifest, and some of them might even look admirable and healthy, like, uh, hey, you know, I have a really great work ethic. Well, that may be what it looks like on the exterior, but internally I was, I was covering up the trauma from my childhood. Hmm. Yeah, 
and it can look good. People don't understand. You know, we tend to look at other people, as you, you know, you said in the beginning of the book, we measure ourselves against other people. We don't realize what's going on in their lives, you know, what they're dealing with or not dealing with. <laughs> and you say we, we may or may not be responsible for our trauma, but we are responsible for our healing. That's so important for us to know, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some traumas hit us. You know, I, I have a bunch of clients right now in Texas that were flooded through Har- Hurricane Harvey. Well, they weren't responsible for their trauma. Um, you know, it's a natural disaster. But sometimes uh, that's the case, and sometimes we are responsible for uh, inflicting our own trauma upon ourselves. It really doesn't matter uh, where it came from. We've got to take responsibility for our healing, and that's what the book's all about. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Um there's um you talk about the human brain and trauma and um the hormones endorphins neurotransmitters which you call hen h-e-n and the serotonin serotonin oxytocin dopamine and adrenaline which you call soda how do the um, hormones endorphins and neurotransmitters um react to trauma yeah it's a complex reaction but the simplest way to convey it is that the, we actually have three brains. We, we have the inner brain, which is called the reptilian brain. That's, that's where we have raw instinct. And then the midbrain is called the mammal brain, and that's where our emotions reside. And then the outer brain is the human brain. That's where we have logic and, and all the things that make uh, the humans distinct from the rest of the animal kingdom. And so when trauma hits, like, for example, Randy, right now we're having a nice conversation and, uh, and a dialogue, and so we're probably using most of our um, uh, re- residing in the human brain. But if something were to suddenly happen that's traumatic, that human brain switches off. The, the, uh, the mammal brain actually uh, largely turns off. But what really turns on is the reptilian instinctual brain. And... Um, and our memories are distorted. The, the reptilian brain is not really designed for clear memory. It's not uh, designed for logic. It's this instinct. And that reptilian brain sets off a bunch of triggers, and they're described in the book. But basically, it comes down to the adrenaline gland, which is just above our, our kidney, releases massive amounts of adrenaline. And that's nature's way of getting us to a safe place, getting our loved ones to a safe place, and protecting ourselves in the, in the immediate aftermath and, and the effects of trauma. And that's normal. And that's where people, you know, go into shock. And the, the first chapter is titled Shock. And it is literally shock to, you know, to be traumatized. And the problem is, is that once the trauma passes, because this whole event was a psyllium brain, our, our brain um, activity is, is distorted. And uh, those memories reside in a place that they really shouldn't. That's why when a soldier comes home uh, from uh, combat, he or she, when they hear a car backfire, they hit the ground. I mean, they, they, we, and those are called triggers. And so those triggers um, literally bring back the same neurological response to trauma as if the trauma was really there, but the trauma was not there. It doesn't, it, it, the trauma has passed. So, the process that we go through is to t- take those memories and basically move them from the reptilian brain back to the human brain where we don't forget about the trauma, but we can remember the event without being triggered. And that allows us to have a healthy life. So for using myself as an example, I can think now, because I've been through the process of healing, I can think about my heart surgery and not be re-triggered and not have that flood of of adrenaline. But instead, I can have, you know, a a conversation about it and actually identify things that were beneficial to me today. For example, when I see a kid in a a wheelchair, I I get a tear in my eye because I don't have to imagine what that child is going through. I lived it. And so I have an increased amount of empathy as a result of having that trauma. That's a benefit. That makes my life richer. Um, and, and I'm not re-triggered. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what the landscape looks like. Okay. So we need to bring it to our conscious mind, basically, our human brain. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> look at it so that we're not so triggered and afraid of it. That makes sense because, yeah, I mean, I've, I've 
So what are your, what's your feeling on um, complex PTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder? Because I know it's not uh, in the DSM-5, but so many people, in my opinion, have it. So what is your feeling about that? Well, Randy, that's, you know, that's, no pun intended, that's a complex question, but it's a great question. Actually, the guy who actually termed, uh, came up with the term PTSD is in the book. His name is Shad. He was a Vietnam veteran. He came home and now works with veterans. And um, I know him. I consider him a friend. And he actually contributed his story to the book. And I guess when you get into complex PST, uh, PT, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you, you want to um, – you really got – this is not a solo exercise. And I guess the best way to answer that question, Randy, is to say there are trauma coaches and trauma therapists uh, that are very skilled. The science is terrific. The bad news is that trauma happens and it pounds us, and we've been through it with COVID and everything else. The good news is the science is really solid on how to how to uh, heal, and it's such a big, important question that the simple answer is don't try and do this solo. Find a good therapist because they can guide you through a number of um, procedures and and uh, alternatives and and that that will bring out that healing right so so you do believe that there is um, complex trauma so in other words I work with several people who um, have suffered emotional abuse from childhood a lot of which they don't remember because they're reptilian brain I guess or their uh, mammal brain kind of took I forget I don't know which brain took over um, helped them cope with it and they don't even you know really know half of what happened but if you are exposed for 17 years of your life to the same emotional abuse over and over and over and over again that is layered trauma and um, how do you yeah it's that's it's more difficult to begin to I guess you have to work from the top down and start, you know, um, working through it because often all of it is not going to come out right away because you would, they wouldn't be able to handle it, right? Yeah, Randy, you're, you're exactly right. And I would just add a, that the complex trauma can go as, as rough as the and brutal the 17 years of uh, trauma in, in your example are, and they are traumatic. You can actually be traumatized by multiple things. There might be that plus a, a ter- terrible car accident of a loved one, and so mm-hmm. it becomes really complex. So we're unraveling a lot in that process. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I mean, life happens. <laughs> uh, you know, I always say that everybody could write a book because life is a story, and there are so many things that go on. Um, just go into all my little flags here so I can remember where I want what I want to talk about. Okay. Well, let's talk and while you're doing that, mm-hmm, I'll just mm-hmm. point out that, that this is such an important conversation because we're not taught this stuff in school. We all get hit with a trauma, but nobody really explained to us how, how we deal with it in a, in a, in a healthy way. And frankly, through the forces of gravity, uh, we, we tend as humans to, to deal with it in an unhealthy way. So, so we got to, we got to really study this topic. Yeah, I, I so agree with you. I think this is so important for everybody. Everybody can benefit from this. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is denial. Um, denial, you know, uh, why do some people go into denial and stay there? Well, denial is nature's response to protect us. It's not necessarily a bad thing as long as, as, long as we don't get stuck there. So, you know, the, the accident or the divorce or the narcissism, whatever, or the abuse may be so overwhelming. Denial is nature's way of protecting us and, and letting us kind of reveal a bit of the trauma a little bit at a time so we're not overwhelmed. Um, and so... Yeah, denial happens. It's right on the path that's, that's typical in trauma. But, again, the approach I take is that when we look at shock, when we look at denial and, and the whole spectrum of the dive stage, this is all normal. It's all healthy as long as we're not hurting ourselves or hurting others. And, uh, but, it's, 
you know, with denial specifically, it's just it's a protective mechanism, so we don't um, literally go into a heart attack and and die. It's it's a protective measure. Mhm. Absolutely. And when we do this in childhood, um, often the 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 maladaptive coping mechanism we use to handle what's going on that we don't fully understand and we don't know how to deal with, um, those maladaptive coping mechanisms we take into adulthood, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I had my trauma at age 11, and quite honestly, I was in my late 50s before my cardiologist, and she's, she's a brilliant woman, um, she identified the, the post-traumatic stress disorder uh, uh, it, I mean, briefly, I was hooked up for a routine exam, and my pulse rate was 150. And she checked her wiring because there was—I was just standing there doing nothing, and my pulse rate was 150. Well, my cardiologist, as a as a child, was a woman, and I was triggered because there I was with a cardiologist. I have great respect for doctors, but it brought back that flood of emotion. Um, and so, yeah, you can suffer a trauma in childhood, and it can last for decades. Um, and it's it's powerful stuff, and you got to deal with it. Yes, we do. I mean, so much of what we deal with now is, you know, goes way, way back to um, childhood. Of course, there are many things that happen in adulthood. I'm not um, minimizing that, but you know, there's so much that we all experience in childhood because no parent is perfect. And um, the previous generations did not have the benefit of psychology like we do. And so anyway, we, we have a lot more help. Um, I like when you say you, you um, mentioned um, therapist, Daniel Kopke, Kepke. And when he says your trauma is valid, even if other people have experienced worse, I hear so many people saying, well, I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be feeling the way I am. People have it so much worse than I do. Why is that statement um, not helpful to us? Yeah, we've got to remember, I think I say in the book, that trauma is not a competition. It's, it's not a matter of, hey, Randy, my trauma is worse than you or yours is worse than mine or anything like that. All, all trauma is valid. Um, and we go through the same, you know, brain process, the same endorphins and neurotransmitters are triggered. It, it, the response, you know, from that point of view is the same. The, the, the actual event may differ. But when you're traumatized, you're traumatized. And, and it's not healthy to, be, to compare ourselves to others because uh, uh, we all go through it, and, and uh, it's a Frankly, it's a silly argument to say, well, my trauma is worse than yours or, or this or that. It's not a competition. All trauma is valid, and we need to just accept with what's in front of us and, and, and give ourselves a break and, and, uh, and just deal with it without, without that comparative nonsense. Right. I mean, it's just a way to go into denial. It's just a way to say, well, you know, I don't really have to deal with this because it's near, not nearly as bad as, you know, the person who went through whatever. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, anger. Anger. Anger can be very good. It can be, it can be a problem for some people. But there's a certain stage of healing where anger is very, very therapeutic. But um, can you talk about anger and when it is appropriate and when it is um, impact in, you know negative negatively impacting our life? Yeah, sure. I mean, anger like denial is normal. Um, you know, we're we're told to always. You know, we we live in a society where a lot of people have this perfectionist you know outlook, which you know, in and of itself is, is uh, controversial at best. It's really not healthy. And, and uh, anger is normal. And, again, I, I tell the reader to accept that, uh, and pardon my language, but I say in the book, if you're pissed, be pissed. Um, mm-hmm. As long as you're not hurting someone else or hurting someone, you know, or hurting uh, yourself. And it's healthy. And um, there was a situation I won't go into it, but, but I was uh, there was a, a, a charity fraud in our neighborhood, 
And I bottled up my feelings and I just acted so, you know, polite to the perpetrators and their enablers because I didn't want to be a jerk. And yet this, this fraud was uh, harmful. It was taking money from innocent people. And uh, finally, I just kind of woke up and I, uh, I decided I was going to speak up about it. So, so, but you, the, the problem with anger is you can take it too far. You know, you know there's, there's a thing, and it's real, called anger addiction. You know, people that re, re, watch the evening news get addicted to just that rage you feel when you see injustices or accidents or, you know, all the things that go on around the world. And so sometimes it's best to kind of maybe turn off the TV or turn off the news uh, if you find yourself getting addicted to that anger, you know, in the political season, we see people just raging on both sides of the aisle um, with anger. And that's 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 just not healthy. So you want to you want to accept on one hand that anger is normal and healthy. On the other hand, it, it needs to be monitored and uh, moderated and regulated so it doesn't get out of control. Right. I mean, I think the idea is not to live in anger. You don't want to live in anger. I mean, often people will come to me and um, and they'll tell me about something that's happened, and I'll say, "So, are you angry about that?" And they're like, "No, not really." And then I know that there's so much that has to come up and out because they're not even realizing that someone has done something to them that they have a right to be angry. Um, there's a lot suppressed under there, and um, when people tell me all of a sudden I feel so angry, I'm like, yes, <laughs> yes, you're getting yeah. it. Um, but you're right. As long as we don't, you know, live in this anger and we don't go out and act out in this anger, it can be a healthy healing um, stage. Um, yeah. I, and I, I think what you just said is brilliant, Randy, because you're right. It's it. If you've been through a, a genuine trauma, it's it's a normal expected stop in the journey to have anger you know you know i i was very angry i was i was mad at my parents the doctors i was mad at god i was mad at everything around me that i had to have open heart surgery when i was a kid and i i own that but i'm i don't feel angry about it now it was it was a stop on the journey at the appropriate time but i don't carry that with me through my whole life Mm-hmm. there's a quote that i cite all the time that I love. Never be a prisoner of your past. It was a life lesson, not a life sentence. I love that because it reminds us that things happen. We learn from it. We grow from it. But we don't have to live in the pain and punishment forever. Uh, there comes a time where, you know, that becomes very weighty and it can destroy our lives, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's that's what I love that quote, and that's what this book is all about. It's about, okay, that's what we want to do. Now there's 15 steps we got to go through to get to that ultimate point. And, and again, the science is so good. And on top of that, I, as I'm sure you know, I interweave stories of real people that have been through this process who have been really hit hard by, you know, uh, really hard traumas, and yet in spite of that, they went through a process of healing that ultimately they not only survived the trauma, but they tapped into that energy and did something really remarkable. And that's, that's, that's the focus. Mm-hmm. Right. This is how, you know, foundations are started and, you know, movements are started and um, people take on, um, you know, jobs or careers where they're helping other people. That, I mean, that's, how it worked for me, um, you know, helping other, learning how to help other people is, is very, very healing for me. You talk about um, implicit and explicit memories. What is, what are they, and what is the difference? Well, uh, implicit memories are, um, you know, kind of internal, less recognized and explicit are things that you we, we remember with a little more focus um i mean that's that's the basic gist of it okay so we uh, we um we touched on or maybe we've been go- talking about the dive stage 
What is the survive stage? Well, yeah, the, the, the dive stage is where we get knocked down, and the survive stage is where we stand back up. That's when we kind of take ownership and responsibility over uh, our traumas. It's where we um, kind of experiment with different ways to heal because there's no one-size-fits-all for healing. Something that might work for you may not work for me and vice versa, so we got to kind of explore different things. Um, and, and there's a general sense of kind of owning it and, and you really, in the survive stage, you're implementing what I call the dynamic duo of, um, of deep breathing exercises, which maybe sound very, very simple, but they're very healing. There's over 20 studies out of Harvard medical school alone showing that deep breathing exercises rewires that brain, uh, chemistry, like we were talking about before. And and brings things back to the um, the human brain. In, in medical terms, we go from a sympathetic or a, a nervous system where that's the fight, flight, freeze mode, back to parasympathetic, which is calm and relaxing, and deep breathing exercises are really important in the survival stage. Or, uh, and then also uh, telling your story. Uh, we call it ground, or we, excuse me, we call it sitting in the fire. It's where we're able to finally sit down and talk about it sit in the fire, those emotions are raging, the anger comes back, the denial comes back, but we have those, frankly, they can be ugly and embarrassing conversations, but by purging ourselves and, and putting it out there and telling our story to a trusted person or, or even better yet, a, a trained therapist, we, we really get back on our feet and we kind of reclaim our lives. Yeah, that's so important. I had a... Um a stress, stress expert on one time and, you know, and I asked her, what's the best, you know, what is the best uh, way to help somebody who's suffering from um, post-traumatic stress disorder? And she said, you know, being with someone that you trust, some place that you feel safe where you can get it out. And it, and you just said that somebody safe or trustworthy. It's very important that you trust the person. And if, you know, if, a lot of times, I hear this all the time, you probably do too, um, people go to therapists and they're there for years and I, and I say, well, you know, have you gotten any better? Well, no, she's okay and she or he's okay and he, you know. The thing is, it's very important that you trust the person that you're with, that you feel like you're making headway because if you don't, these things aren't going to come out so easily, right? Oh, absolutely. You can't, I'll, I'll say it explicitly, uh, and I'm so glad you, you brought all this up, is that you cannot, it is impossible to heal from a trauma that you bottle up inside. Can't be, can't be done. That will manifest. On the outside, you might look okay, but inside there's an internal war. And until you find that trusted person, or at a minimum, minimum journal about it and get that information out and express it in some way or to someone uh you you cannot heal um i made that classic mistake myself and i made it for years and until i had my trusted person was my cardiologist because she's a she's just a wonderful human being and i could tell her the ugly emotions i had as a kid you know going through open heart surgery she she sat and listened and, you know, again, it's sitting in the fire. It's embarrassing to admit as a grown adult that I haven't resolved this early childhood trauma. But until you take that bold step, and it's, it's a courageous step of getting it out, that bad place. Mm-hmm. So true. So true. You volunteered at San Quentin Prison. And... Um, you know, you tell about some of your experiences. Actually, you talk about sitting in the fire. But um, what did you? What are some of the things that you discovered when you were talking to the inmates? Yeah, the the San Quentin, and I still am a volunteer there. As soon as COVID oh. uh, clears up, I, I I'll be going back in, and also in Orange County Jail. And um, that was profound because when you are in prison. You don't have the luxury of happy talk. You've got to face some things or you're going to go down. It's, it's just a, a very um, 
situation. And the program, and I want to give credit to it, called IPP, Inside Prison Project, is where I volunteer. It's a secular program and um, is profoundly powerful because the greatest miracle on planet Earth is change, the ability to change, even as an adult, to, to take the courageous step of changing. And when the inmates walk into prison, typically there's that machoism that's that there's that denial that I never committed that crime. There's the the um, you know, just all the things that come with machoism and the sneers and the sarcasm and the meanness and all that. But I've talked to enough of these gentlemen in prison to know that at night they're terrified. They're they're literally wetting the bed. Um the the trauma is so deep. And it's not just the trauma of being in prison, it's the trauma of the uh, not a, and the and the guilt that they feel themselves, but the hurt they've caused their family, the co- the hurt they've caused their victim and their family, the the hurt that they've caused the society, and the and the desire to heal is so profound. There's a four or five year waiting list for the inmates to get into the program, but at the start of the program, generally there's still that machoism, there's that denial and that fake you know uh, mask of of uh, you know, uh, and that kind of swagger, but over a course of about two years, using those two, primarily those two principles that we've talked about of sitting in the fire and telling your story. And those stories are often go back to their childhood and how they were abused as children. Uh, and many times sexually molested as children. Um, and, um, and then also sitting in the fire and, um, and telling their story, and also the deep breathing exercises. The first time I ever grounded, or you can call it meditation or whatever you want to call it, the first time I ever meditated, I was literally sitting between two convicted murders in San Quentin prison. And yet that was so powerful because as a daily habit, it's remarkably healing to that brain chemistry. And I'll just, I'll just tell you, Randy, it's the most profound, you can call it even a spiritual experience, that at the end of two years, these men have turned their lives around. They have become gentlemen. One inmate came up to me and said, you know, Dr. Bell, I'll tell you something. I may be in prison for the rest of my life, but it's going to be a good and honorable life. And, mm. and, and it's just, it takes your breath away. The humility that they have, the, the sorrow that they have for what they've done, and, and they've, they've reached that miracle stage where, they, where there's been a profound change of heart. I would be proud to live next door to these to these inmates having the going through the process. In fact, one of my friends in San Quentin was paroled, and I just attended his college graduation. And let me tell you, he graduated with honors. I didn't graduate oh, with honors, no. but 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 he did. It's powerful. I've got chills. <laughs> that just gave me, me too. chills. <laughs> wow, me that is really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, you talk, so you call this restorative justice, and you say that, you know, traditional Western um, forms of punishment, we, you know, we just punish, we punish. And you talk about this indigenous uh, philosophies of the Yukon and New Zealand and, and other ones where they sit down and they listen to the offenders. Um, they mentor these people. They spend time to teach them. And um, so we really are getting it wrong. Now, I, granted, there are people in these prisons who have some serious disorders and they are dangerous to society. But you, do you believe that most of them are, um, can be rehabilitated? I do. And by, by the way, I want to interject. We also go through the same process on the victim side. It's, it's both victims and offenders. And, and to your question, yes. In fact, I've, I've even asked many people, and I don't know that there's a formal study, but 95% of the inmates want, want that healing. They want to go through the process. They want to come clean deep down. There is about 5% that are very in, in a mental state that are, frankly, even disturbing to the other inmates. They, they, don't, they don't seek that restorative uh, justice you know, process. But the vast majority do, and that's that's something good to be said about the about humanity. I'll say that's that's really really good to know. How do they function in prison once they've let go of this, you know, 
this facade, this macho image, how do they function around the other inmates um, when they're just being real? You know, there's, there's kind of, you know, I'm a sociologist and as in sociology, we look at things in a spectrum. It's not, you know, uh, divided into neat boxes. Uh, and, and the inmates that go through that process tend to start gravitating towards the, the wiser inmates who have also been through that process or where they're more retrospective and introspective. And they, they, frankly, they're just nice guys to hang out with. They, they, they've they've processed the trauma they've they've done all that they can in terms of of um you know accepting the responsibility and on the on the victim side knowing that the offender come clean and has made genuine life changes is very healing for the victim and and oftentimes there's there's it takes it, it takes months or years to facilitate it but there are meetings between the victim and the offender and that's that's again a profound spiritual experience to see, you know, the the remorse on one side and the forgiveness on the other, and a reconciliation of of sorts. Um, but they they in prison, even in prison, there are there's a large group of inmates who are all about taking responsibility and kindness, and and to the extent showing charity to other inmates that are going through the same process. These are human beings. They have the same range of emotions you and I have. And, and it's really wonderful to see them kind of reconnect with humanity and take responsibility and, and for this to be, a, you know, a, a healing process. <clears throat> You're doing such great work. I, I bet you wish you could clone yourself <laughs> and be in every <laughs> prison. Do you, have you um, created a program that can be uh, reproduced? I'm thinking about doing that. I mean, the response to the book has been pretty profound, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. of starting something, but it's just in the embryonic stages. Right now, my my dire, desire is, you know, I spent years, ten years working on this book. It wasn't a quick, it wasn't a quick uh, thing, and it's a fairly extensive, comprehensive book where I really went through the literature and the science, and then followed people's stories. So right now, I just want to get that into people's hands, and and frankly. It's not a money-making venture. You know, you can buy the book for 99 cents on Kindle. I'm trying to make it available. I'm not, I'm not trying to create a business empire here and because the, right. the information just simply needs to get, in, get into people's hands. You're right. You're so right. This is just wonderful, wonderful work that you're doing. Um, so what are some of the ways that we can thrive? How do we... You have some exercises in the book. You have some different things that people can do to um, begin to thrive, to change this, um, this whole narrative. Can you share some of that with us? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I try to practice what I preach. You know, I, I'm, I went through a trauma, and I've been through others. Um, and what I find is that great secret, that as you – reach out to others and try and help others or be of service, you know, and, and, you know, we're talking about San Quentin prison in that process. Well, I hope I'm helping these inmates for as, as someone volunteering my time, I feel like I'm the, I'm the one that has the greater benefit. I learn more than they do. And so that's the great miracle of, uh, of service, finding an area where you can help others, uh, and not everybody's cut out to go into prison. I know that's 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 rough, but but for somehow somehow I have a higher threshold uh, for trauma than than some other people I know, and so that works for me. But finding whatever works for you uh, and being of service, like your podcast is of service. I'm sure you feel the same way that 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 you get probably you you get a lot out of it. And that's oh my gosh, find, yes. yeah, yeah. Find something that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been doing this for over 10 years. I've never made a penny on it, but I, it's like going to the best university in the world about life. I mean, I learned so much and I talk to the most wonderful people and, um, and, um, yes, and I'm giving back, but don't you, do you, do you believe that one has to heal first before they should be giving it away, giving away their service? 
I, I think so. And, you know, going back to the gift you're giving many people through your podcast, you feel it. But as I'm sure you know, it's just like they say when you, you take a plane ride, put your oxygen mask on first and then help others around you. We, we've got to get to a safe place first. Then we're truly in an authentic place to be able to help others. Yes. And the reason I brought that up is because most people who come to me for trauma they're always deflecting and wanting to help everybody else. Well, I wish I could help my brother. I wish I could help my sister. I wish I could help my mother. Or, well, I'm going to go volunteer. I'm going to write a book. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You need to focus on you first. So it's always, it's often a distraction for people from healing. They would rather just put it out there than face themselves inside, you know, and I think so. That's why I said that, because it's very important that we give to ourselves and heal ourselves before we try to give it out, because then what what happens is we're giving from a place we don't have. And it just makes us worse, right? So well said, yes. Uh, In the thriving stage, the major transition it's from self-medication and premature, you know, to, but, and, and you're right, that is a deflection from facing reality. And that's another type of self-medication, things that distract us from facing the problem. I mean, alcohol or, or high demand politics or high demand religion or any of these things are self-medication. They numb the pain. They don't address the pain. As we transition into thriving we transition from self-medication to self-care. We want to take good care of ourselves. You know, physically, we want to take good care of ourselves. Uh, as much as the word exercise is uh, turned off to a lot of people, um, th- there's endorphins and, and all kinds of wonderful brain chemistry that is, you know, accompanied by, by exercise. Um, you know, going to a day at the spa, you know, reading a good book, um, taking a walk in nature, uh, spending a day at the beach or at the lake. Um, these are self-care measures, and it's so important that we conscientiously, you know, surround ourselves with self-care and, and, ta- and be kind to ourselves. Then we're in a position to help others. Hmm. Yes, thank you. Thank you for that validation. <laughs> you have this, um, page 166, you have stress reduction. <laughs> And you talk about um, spending time outside, working out, watching a funny video, listening to inspiring music, taking a warm shower, jumping on the bed, <laughs> blowing bubbles, yeah. doodling. I mean, you know, and the, the other ones, obviously, like, like meditate and um, take a walk and, and get a good night's sleep and those kind of things. But there's some really cute things here. And, yeah, blowing bubbles. How can you be upset when you're blowing bubbles? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or play with a child. Or play with a child, uh-huh. all kinds of wonderful things we can do. Right, right, right. Um, what is, um, what's the difference between guilt and shame? Well, uh, if I can give you the backstory to answering that question, it, it makes it, I think it makes that concept pop. I, I wrote a prior book called Me, We, Do, Be. And it was doing pretty great, and I was back east, and I was on television uh, like three times in one day in New York City, and the word was getting out about this book, and I was sitting kind of at the side on the New York Stock Exchange ready to go on TV, and I got two uh, email messages about the same time. The first one was a wealth management group in Beverly Hills asking me to be a keynote speaker, and I said, sure, I'd be happy to, and I sent the email back. But the, the next email changed my life. It was from Skid Row at a, a, not just a homeless shelter, but a kid's homeless shelter. These ki- there is a homeless shelter designed to uh, house not just the, the adults who are homeless, but the children. And they said, look, Dr. Bell, we can't afford your books. We can't afford your speaking fees. But these kids have got to hear what you're saying. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I emailed back and I said, give me three dates. I'll make one work. I will be there. And if you've ever been to Skid Row, let me just say it's it's very bleak. But I was just thinking, what on earth am I going to say to these kids that's going to help them out? Well, coincidentally, I was uh, a few days later, I was back in San Quentin 
talking to the inmates, and I asked them, what should I tell these kids? And they were resolute. They were, they were right on their game. They said, you go tell those kids the difference between guilt and shame. And I had to, and that was a humbling moment because I have a couple college degrees and I didn't know the difference. And I said, teach me, tell me what's the difference. And they said, there's shame is who I am and guilt is what I did. And what I did in my case is I committed a crime and I'm guilty. And I, I own that and I, I regret that. But shame is something that, that I had no control over. Like my family grew up with not enough money or I felt shame over the color of my skin, or I felt shame over um, any number of things. I was tall, too tall, too short, too fat, too thin, all these things of which we don't necessarily have control over, and I felt ashamed. And shame is something that there, you should not feel guilty about. It's just what was handed to us in life, and understanding that difference was a big game changer because what happened in my case was uh, it, it, these are the inmates speaking, is that I felt shame about being in poverty and, and the ridiculous things my parents were doing with their lives, that the pressure built up. I wouldn't talk about it. I joined a gang. I was triggered. I exploded. I did something horrible. And it was all because I never processed the shame. And mm-hmm. explaining the difference is very helpful to the, the kids to realize that even though they're in a homeless shelter, it's not their fault. It, they are okay as human beings. And that's exactly what I relayed to the kids in, in, uh, in, um, uh, at Skid Row. And that's the difference. And how, did the, how was that received? Oh, it was, it was miraculous. You know, after I gave my presentation, I tried to keep it real simple for the kids. I mean, this one kid came up to me and just, he says, I never told you anybody. But then he proceeded to tell some things he felt shame about. And the thing is, I couldn't fix it. That's not the point. It's just the fact that he was, a lot, he was letting it out. You could see the relief just come over his entire, you know, persona of, of just the fact that he was ex- talking about it. And that's the point is talk about these things, these topics. And, and it was very healing. I could see it in his face. Oh, wow. That is so terrific. This book is is just amazing. I I can't I can't believe I got through all the flags. <laughs> I had a lot of them, but um, <laughs> but as we're coming down, as we're winding down to the end of the show, you know, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about anything. I mean, I've asked you a lot of questions, but is there something else that you you think is important to share? Well, Randy, you've you've done some research and you've asked wonderful questions. I mean, there's so many things I, I'd like to I'd like to bring some of these principles to life if I can just share a couple of the, the examples from the book of people sure. that have actually applied these principles. Um, I talked about JC, my, yeah, my friend from JC, my JC that came out of San Quentin. I've, I've talked about him. I, w- I went to uh, high school. I'm so fortunate with Jerry Jewell. Jerry Jewell is the first disabled person to ever land a starring role on network television. She was in fact alive and Jerry was just um, on HBO's Deadwood, the, the movie Deadwood. And um, Jerry was disabled. I, as I say, I knew her in high school. But she, you know, the, the book, and I want to give credit where it's credit to, the book is packed with wisdom. But it didn't come from me. I'm, I'm certainly not smart enough for that. It came from sitting down with someone like Jerry and saying, Jerry, what did your path look like? Because, you know, that must have felt awfully awkward walking through high school with, with this disability. Um, and, and today, not only that, Jerry's now spoken at the White House three times. And, and, and she said, you know what, I made it a conscientious choice that, yeah, I got a bad, you know, I got a bad uh, set of cards dealt to me, but I was going to make the most for it. My parents could have just gotten me an easy chair and a TV, and I could have just kind of hidden from living life. But I decided to go for it, and I had the support of my parents. I went on audition for. Uh, she told me she auditioned for stand-up comedy. That's a tough, um, you know, for any for anybody, let alone yeah. somebody with a disability. And and then she just rose. You know, she fought. Was you know discriminated against. She was bullied. She just kept kept going. And she landed the starring role. And I'll tell you, Jerry's now inspired millions. And I just had Easter dinner with Jerry. I, I love her. I like a sister. And and. Um, 
and, and the stories like that that bring the principles alive, alive because she was angry. She was depressed. You know, she went into denial. She did all the things that we all do um, in mishandling our trauma. But then she woke up and applied these principles. And I'll tell you, she's a thriver. So I'm trying to convey that this, this stuff really works. It's not an anecdote. It's not a fad that will be gone tomorrow. This stuff is permanent you know, change that we can really invite into our lives if, if we'll just allow it you know, and be teachable and do it. That's a great story. Now, were her parents, did her parents um, contribute to, the, to her success? I mean, in other words, did they just never, they never let her just, like you said, sit on the couch and just, you know, kind of be a lazy person. They treated her as if she was just like any other kid, right? Is that, is that what her situation was? Yeah, absolutely. Her parents uh, did that, and her sister Gloria, who who I also went to high school with, who was who was probably the prettiest girl at Troy High School in Fullerton, California, and Gloria loved her sister. You know, Jerry was was layered in a loving family. They weren't. You know, we grew up in Fullerton. It wasn't a it wasn't a wealthy neighborhood, but it was a loving, kind community, and and that's what we need to create more of. So people that are going through their tough times, we cannot only allow them to have a wonderful life that they deserve. They can really flourish and do remarkable things. And her parents, to answer your question, yes, they were on board. They were like, Jerry, we're going to buy a skateboard, and you got several palsy, but you're going to learn how to skate like all the other kids in the neighborhood. And we're not going to treat you like uh, we're not, you know, you're not, we're not, we're not going to give you a pity party. You know, life. Life happens. This is what we got, but we love you, and and uh, let's go for it. And that's that was the attitude. That's beautiful. Great, yeah. great story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. <clears throat> so we're talking about your book, Post Traumatic Thriving: The Art, Science, and Stories of Resilience, with Dr. Randall Bell. Um, Dr. Bell, do you have a website? And um, also, where can we get your book? Well, yes. Um, the website is drbell.com, and I'm very accessible. I love getting the emails uh, and messages from people saying that, hey, I just got one from someone. Is, is She got the book, and she and her husband uh, ha- have read it three times. And I say, every time we read the book, we get to a higher level of, of, of healing. I mean, that just with mm. that, those two people alone, it was worth writing the book for 10 years to, to get that feedback. And if there's something... Mm that's missing or something that you feel is, is, uh, is incorrect. I love to hear about it because I, I really feel like I've had this unique career where I've worked on the world trade center. I worked on hurricane Katrina. I worked on the bikini atoll nuclear weapons test sites, and I've met the people behind the statistics. They've been very thoughtful in sharing their stories with me. And my job is to get it out to, to people that that's, you know, again, it's not a money-making thing. It's it's a human thing, and mm-hmm. and the feedback that I get from people, I would I would welcome that feedback. <laughs> and the book's everywhere. It's on Amazon. It's in every bookstore. It's it's wherever you can get a book. That's incredible. Yeah, it's 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 so wonderful when people you know really really uh, soak up the book, get so much value out of it. So. Um, it, yeah, it's just and, an and Randy, I gotta just say one. I, 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 I excuse me for interrupting. I gotta just say, make sure I make one point. We're okay. we're dealing with the single most important issue facing humanity, and that is unresolved trauma, especially childhood trauma. And that we're you know, and you're talking about it. You're part of the solution. And as we address that, we're gonna make the world a better place. That is problem number one, and we gotta face it. Oh, absolutely. Amen. <laughs> yeah, this is so important. I, you know, before I started doing this work, you know, I really wasn't even aware, you know, of trauma and how it was impacting people's lives. But it is fundamental in all of us. Um, <clears throat> it's what keeps us down. It's what it's what makes us rise up, you know, healing from it. So uh, great. It was just such a pleasure talking to you. 
and I thank you for being my guest today. I had a lot of, I had a good time. <laughs> it was great. Well, me, me too, Randy. Thank you. I've enjoyed every single second, and, and thanks for uh, for giving me a, a platform to share some of these thoughts. Sure, anytime. And if you have, you know, if you update, if there's anything more that you have, you can contact me, and we'll do it again. Um, and I and I did want to comment that everything that you said. I completely agree with. So I think you got it right. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, have a wonderful day. Take care. You, you too, Randy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.